And we are continuing our series in the book of Revelation. So if you would, please turn with me to Revelation chapter 14. Revelation chapter 14. You know, often we're confronted with a decision. While many of us would love to not make decisions and sort of muddle in the middle, there are those points where we have to choose a side. We have to decide whether to go in one direction or the other. And certainly that's the case as we come to this chapter, chapter 14, in the book of Revelation. Now, you're going to find that this chapter falls not chronologically. It is a chapter that, as a matter of fact, takes a portion of time out from the flow of chronological events in the book of Revelation. And for just a moment, it discusses a theme, an important theme, that we need to reflect on and that the people during this time will certainly need to reflect on. What it discusses is what happens to the friends of God and what happens to the enemies of God. And I think the purpose of this passage is to drive home the point that we all have a decision to make about where we stand with God. We cannot muddle in the middle. We have to come to the place to where we make a decision about God. That's true in our time, and it is certainly true during the seven years of tribulation that are yet to come described for us here in the book of Revelation. What it shares with us is the outcomes of those decisions. Those who choose to follow God will stand with the Lamb of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, as He reigns, and we can rejoice in that outcome. But there are others who will rebel against God, who will choose to reject God, and their outcome is quite different. Now, some of you, as we go into this passage, are going to see a part of the passage that discusses literally hell, fire, and brimstone. It is politically incorrect to discuss that in today's world with our sensibilities, but let me share this with you. It is the Word of God, and it is a doctrine that we should not shrink away from because it's the truth. Just because we find something uncomfortable, just because we don't find it to our tastes, does not make that true. So we have to look at this passage of Scripture, and we have to see what God reveals about the future and about Himself, and not feel squeamish about it, because this is as much a part of God, His wrath that's going to be discussed in this passage, as is His holiness and His love. So what we're going to do as we come into this text, as we always do, is take this verse by verse. If you're new to us, your bulletins have an outline that you can follow, and you'll see that in the outline that is up before you on the screen, there's a highlighted word that goes in the blank on those outlines. So if you like to keep notes, we encourage you to do so. And if you want to just listen, you're welcome to do that as well. But what we find as we come to this text is a period of time, it's a fast forward, if you will, to the end of the tribulation. Now, if you remember in the 13th chapter, we saw some very dire prophecies about the Antichrist and about the false prophet. 
And we saw the terrible persecution that the people of God will experience as a result of these two players attacking the people of God. What I find is I've been studying prophecy, and in particular, I've been going through the book of Isaiah and the book of Jeremiah of late and some other Bible studies. And you know what I've found? Very often when it talks about horrible times that are ahead, the Word of God takes a sidebar and it moves forward to the end and it shares with us the hope that we have, the hope for God's people. You see, when we look at the terrible things that are going to be visited upon God's people, sometimes it's easy to get discouraged. Sometimes we wonder, man, is it all going to work out? So this is an assurance to the people of God right here in this text that yes, in the end, God wins. And those who are followers of God win with Him. That's the idea. That's the point that this passage begins to share with us. So let's look at the first couple of verses of chapter 14 and notice the setting. It says, Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, now, we know that the Lamb in the book of Revelations is none other, none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ is standing in Zion. Now, what is Zion? Mount Zion is Jerusalem. So, the setting is Jesus Christ has returned, and He's standing in His city. Now, when we left off in chapter 13, if you remember, the Antichrist and the false prophet were both headquartered in Jerusalem. So as a reminder that Jerusalem belongs to God and that ultimately God wins, we fast forward to a time when the Lamb of God is standing in His holy city as the victor, as the king. And notice what else. The text goes on to say that as the Lamb is standing on Mount Zion with Him, 144,000 who have his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. Now, last week when we looked into chapter 13, we saw that there were many who would take the mark of the beast. We saw that that number was 666. No one knows exactly what that number means. Many have tried to identify it, and then many have been embarrassed by their identification. So we're not going to go there. We're not going to try to identify it. But here's what we do know. They had marked themselves as belonging to the beast, the Antichrist. They had chosen allegiance with him. Now contrast that with chapter 14, and we fast forward ahead, and here are 144,000 followers of Jesus Christ that we saw earlier in the book of Revelation were sealed and protected by God, 12,000 from 12 tribes of Israel. So what we find in this 14th chapter is the rest of the story about this 144,000. They have made it through the tribulation. They are standing with Christ in victory in Jerusalem because he has protected them. It goes on to say of this 144,000 that they had the name of the Father written on their foreheads. So just as the followers of the Antichrist identified themselves with the Antichrist, choosing to be his followers by receiving 666 on their foreheads or on their hands, this 144,000 have been marked on their foreheads by God. 
They were identifying themselves with God. And so they are protected. Then look at the text as it goes on. Verse 2. And I heard a voice from heaven, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of loud thunder. And the voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. Now, here is the picture. When Christ is standing in Jerusalem as king, when he has the remnant of Israel that will begin this new kingdom with him, all of heaven celebrates. As the angels who have longed to look into what God is doing in the future and who have glimpses just like us, of what God will do. See it finally come to fruition. Their response is worship. They praise God. They lift up their voices. There is beautiful music. There is beautiful expression of praise toward God. You know, when we see the plan of God unfolding. And when we put our faith in the truth of God, we can't see what they're seeing here in this text right now. But as sure as the word of God is written, as sure as God is, these things will come to be. And so we can praise even leading up to this, the God who makes these promises, who keeps these promises. And all of heaven will be celebrating when this takes place. Look at what else we see in this text. This singing that goes before the throne where there is the living creatures, where, where there are the four living creatures and where there are the elders. It goes on to say no one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. So joining heaven is earth. And here on earth are these specially selected, protected Followers of God, the remnant of Israel, and they're singing a new song. And I don't know what the words to that new song are. No one does. But here's what we do know. They are the redeemed from the earth. God bought them out. That's what that word redeemed means. And God bought them out by the blood of the Messiah, the Lamb who is their king, standing in Jerusalem praising and worshiping God. So as we continue in the text, we move on to a description of this 144,000, these redeemed from the earth. And here's something fascinating. Their redemption brought them to the place of obedience. Look at verse 4 and it says this, it is these who have not defiled themselves with women for they are virgins. Now we're going to pause here for a moment and let me just share with you this is not being misogynist. They are not saying that women defile men. It's talking about sexual immorality. And so what it's saying is this. They have been redeemed and it has directly affected their lifestyle. When they chose to be followers of God, they chose to remain pure. Some believe that perhaps what is being discussed in this section is this idea. In the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 7, the Apostle Paul talks about those in the current circumstances of persecution that were going on in the first century, how they might need to remain single 
because persecutors can use your family against you to cause you to stand against Christ. We don't know if that's what this refers to or just the idea of purity. And notice it says they were virgins. Now in our culture, virgin could almost be a pejorative term. Often we will hear people even make fun of people who choose to remain pure out of obedience to Christ. With this 144,000, they have chosen to remain pure because they want to honor their God. And so this text tells us of their purity. Notice it goes on to not only talk about this fact, it goes on in verse 4 and it says this, it is these who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. Unreservedly, they have followed and as Christ is King, they will continue to follow the Lord. And then it says this, these have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God and the Lamb. Now this 144,000, they're just the beginning of what God is going to build in His kingdom for Israel. The first fruits in the Old Testament was an offering that was dedicated to God. And the idea was this is the first part of a greater harvest. So we are dedicating the first part of our harvest to God, recognizing that much more is to come. This is such a word of hope for Israel when it talks about these being the first fruits. The fact that God will multiply them and build a holy nation dedicated to God. When we look through the pages of Scripture, we find that Israel did not always follow God. As a matter of fact, Israel as a nation turned to idols and often associated with the idol worship was immorality. And it was like the hook that drew the children of Israel in to immorality. Here the Word of God is telling us that these have chosen to be followers of Christ. They have abandoned immorality. They have pursued the Lamb. And they are the first fruits of a nation that will do the same. And then look at verse 5. And in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. Holy living. Righteous living. These followers who will stand with the Lamb in Jerusalem when Christ returns, are going to be the first fruits of a nation that God is going to build where He will keep the promises that He made to Abraham because He is the faithful God. As you read this passage that is a fast forward, think of God's faithfulness. Think of the fact that God keeps His promises, that God delivers on what he says he will do. But then we come to the next part of this passage. As the passage progresses, we come to a part where we see some angels who are heralds of God's truth. Now, a herald is one who broadcasts far and near a message. And what we're going to see are three angels that have a message for the rest of the earth. And as we come to verse 6, 
we find that the first part of this message is a message of hope. Look at what the sixth verse says. Barry did such a good job of reading this passage, but let's revisit it. Because what it says is this, Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead, and an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. So here is an insight into something that God is going to do even during the tribulation. Just before Christ returns, this angel will appear and he will share the gospel, the eternal gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. To me, what this demonstrates is the grace of God. That God, even now, would open the way for someone to respond to the gospel and enter into relationship with Him, right standing with God. Look at verse 7, and it goes on to describe what goes on here. It says, And He said with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory, because the hour of judgment has come. And worship Him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. Now what He's calling the earth to do is first of all glorify Him. Remember in chapter 13, there were those who had taken the mark of the beast and they were glorifying the beast. They were worshiping Him. They were expressing praise to the beast in such a way that it mimics much of the praise that we find in the Old Testament of the Father. What people are being called to hear is a change of heart, a change of mind about who God is. And they are to give glory to Him. In other words, they are to recognize His rightful position as God. It goes on to say that they need to make a decision about where they stand because the hour of judgment has come. In other words... The consequences for man's sin are about to be visited on the earth, and you need to make a decision. You know, as I look at this passage of Scripture, I think of how the gospel is presented to literally millions of people today, and they have to make a decision about what they will do with the gospel. We can't muddle in the middle. We can't say, you know... At some point, this really makes sense, but not now. The folks who are presented with this truth have a decision to make in the moment. And I would submit to you that in all ages, when presented with the gospel, people have that same decision to make. The scripture is very clear. Now is the day of salvation. It is not something that we should put off that we should hold for later, but recognize that we have an opportunity to come into a relationship with the living God. And there's no guarantee that I'll have that opportunity later. This is what these people are being told, to glorify God, to recognize the consequences of refusing to recognize God for who He is, and then they are to worship Him who made the heaven and the earth and the springs of water. In other words, once again, recognize God for who He is. We only worship 
one that we recognize as God. So this is what God is calling them to, recognize me for who I am. Repent, turn from your life that pursued the kingdom of this world and recognize the kingdom of heaven ruled by the Lamb of God. Then we go on in the text and we come to the next part of this passage. And as we come to this eighth verse, we find another angel, a second one. And listen to what he says. This angel followed the first, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. Now, in this part of the text, there is a glimpse again into the future. And here's the truth. The world system, the kingdom of this world that has pursued a life apart from God will fall. It's not iffy. It's not maybe. It is true. It will fall. When the Scripture uses the term Babylon, it goes clear back to the book of Genesis. Where at the Tower of Babel, there were those who stood against God and elevated man and devalued God. And as we trace the heritage of that thought process through Scripture, we come to the book of Revelation, and that thought process of elevating man, devaluing God, is going to fall. Even though it has been a dominant thought process in this world, it's headed for a fall. And what the Word of God is warning people about is this. If you continue in that path and you can choose to, you're heading for a fall. You will fall like Babylon the Great. One of the marks of Babylon the Great, promiscuity, sexual immorality. The idea in this text is this. Man makes the rules that God put into place, rejecting God's rules and elevating man. And one of the most tempting areas for us to do that in is morality. Compounded with that is the idea that sexual immorality is often hand in glove with idolatry. Throughout the Old Testament, the association of idolatry and sexual immorality is stark when you read the behaviors of those who worshipped systems that were apart from God. Certainly that is going to take place during the tribulation. As the Antichrist elevates, he will do everything that he can to stand contrary to the things of God. And so morality will be turned on its head. The things that we look into the Word of God and find that this is outside of God's plan and purpose as creator will be totally upturned and overturned. And we see that even in our culture as more and more confusion about what is right and what is wrong, what is moral and what is not. 
permeates our culture. There will be no church at this point who can stand and say this is right and this is wrong. Then we come to the next part of the passage. As we come to verses 9 through 11, we come to a part of the passage that many would skip over because it talks about the consequence to those who stand against God. Look at verse 9 and it says this, And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he shall drink the wine of God's wrath, poured out full strength into the cup of his anger. And we're going to pause there for a moment. Here is the idea. When people choose to accept the mark of the beast, chapter 13, they do so fully aware that they are standing against Almighty God and standing with Satan, the beast, and his false prophet. It is a conscious decision, not a deception, not something where they don't understand exactly the decision that they're making. They make the decision, and they follow the beast. And by following the beast, it doesn't just mean that you've joined into a political system that you're a part of. Following the beast means I identify with what he's saying and I agree with what he's saying about God. Remember how the beast was described? He had blasphemous names. In other words, he spoke against God in the worst possible terms. So when I sign on with the Antichrist, I sign on with that attitude toward God. Something else we saw in the 13th chapter, the beast will kill the people of God. If I sign on with the beast, then I'm signing on and saying, I'm okay with that. They deserve to die because they're followers of God. Do you catch that? God looks at the choice that they have made to reject Him, and although God is long-suffering, that long-suffering nature of God comes to a close, and the bowl of His wrath is finally filled to the point that the bowl overflows into judgment on those who have rejected God. Now look at the consequences of being a recipient of God's wrath. God's wrath is ultimately expressed in the lake of fire, in hell. Verse 10, when it says, we'll also drink the wine of God's wrath, it goes on to say this, poured full strength into the cup of His anger, and He will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. Now, what is He talking about? Tormented with the fire of sulfur. It goes on in verse 11. And the smoke of their torment goes up for how long? Forever. Now, there are those who believe that there is not a conscious torment that is hell for eternity. 
I want you to look at the language of this text and see what it says because after it talks about this torment that goes on forever, by the way, torment indicates what? Consciousness, right? A physicality. So the idea that is being expressed here about hell is crystal clear. Those who are rejectors of God suffer an eternal torment. And it goes on to say, after it talks about this going up forever, they have no rest, day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. Now, this passage, you know, is, is, is hard for us to, to cope with because when we think about an eternal punishment, wow, but this isn't isolated. When we look a little later, in Revelation chapter 20, verse 10, it says this, the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur. Sounds very familiar, doesn't it, to what's described for us in chapter 14, where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So what is being described in chapter 14 parallels this place that was created for Satan the Antichrist, and the false prophet. And what it's saying is this, if you choose to be in league with them, then the same outcome that awaits them awaits you. That's the idea. Look a little bit later in verse 13 of Revelation 20. The sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. And death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. Now, this is not something that I look at and I enjoy talking about it. But brothers and sisters, there are people around us who are destined for this by their choice. They are choosing to stand against God, and this awaits them. I think as believers, we have dulled our passion for evangelism because we have diminished our understanding of hell. So many in our culture avoid this topic like the plague. And yet, it's a topic that the Word of God addresses without apology. And it is shared as a horrible consequence that awaits those who will not respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's a warning. It's a call to believers to look around them and see those who are headed for this eternal expression of God's wrath that is an eternal torment for the souls who reject. Now, some of us would look and say, well, how does a loving God consign someone to eternal punishment? When we look at this passage, remember, we see that hell was originally created 
for the devil and for the beast and for the false prophet and for the angelic beings who followed the devil. But here's the thing. We only come into a personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The only path that we have to a personal relationship with God, forgiveness for our sin, is through the Lord Jesus Christ. So if we have no place in heaven, there is only one place left for us to be. And that is hell. Because we have joined ourselves with those who stand opposed to the things of God. As believers, when we talk about hell, it should break our hearts. It shouldn't be something that we look at and almost rejoice in the idea that bad people wind up there. That isn't why it's shared in this passage. It's shared in this passage because this is the outcome for all who stand opposed to God. There is no other place for them. Now, as we continue in this text, after it talks about the enemies of God, it goes on in the 12th verse to talk about something else, hope for believers who have faced death or who have died. Look at verse 12. Here is a call for endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. Now, this is written to the tribulation saints. We believe that the church has been removed from the tribulation, that those who come to faith in Jesus Christ during the tribulation will pay a heavy price for their faith. They will be persecuted intensely. And so what the Word of God is saying to those followers of Jesus is endure. This will be tough. This will be challenging for you. But you endure and you keep faithful to the commandments of God and your faith in Jesus Christ. And here's the huge perspective builder, verse 13. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors for their deeds follow them. For believers, even if they die at the hands of persecutors, they go into the presence of God. They are winners nonetheless. In fact, when we look in the Word of God, there's such an important perspective that we as believers can glean from a passage like this. First of all, a reminder from our Lord. The Lord Jesus Christ said to those in the first century who were in short order, going to face persecution, do not fear those who will kill the body but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear Him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. There's a temptation to go along, to get along with the world around us when the world stands opposed to God because of personal inconvenience. And what Jesus reminded His followers of is this. 
All they can do is take your body, follow the one who has body and soul. And then secondarily, the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul faced horrible persecution. You can read it cataloged for you in the Word of God. Beatings, being stoned, terrible, terrible persecution. And listen to these words. We do not lose heart. Though our outer nature is wasting away, our inner nature is being renewed day by day. For this slight momentary affliction is preparing us for eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Now, being stoned, being beaten, all of those things that Paul experienced, light and momentary affliction, and Paul's words were yes in comparison to what awaits. He goes on to say this, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Look, when we make our decisions, we must make our decisions on what is unseen. God, spiritual matters, spiritual things, the things that are in the future, taking God at His word and trusting Him and enduring the things that are seen very often as we do that. Final part of the passage. Chapter 14 describes for us the harvest of the earth. But let me share this with you. When we think of harvest, we think of a good thing. We think in terms of getting lots of good food because the harvest is ready. Here the term harvest is not referring to the good things that will happen to those who are harvested. It's talking about judgment that is coming from God. We begin with the 14th through 16th verses, and here's what we find. The Son of Man, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lamb, is going to come differently when He comes again. It says, verse 14, Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and seated on the cloud, one like the Son of Man. Now, Bible scholars, you know that Son of Man is a reference Christ used of Himself and that Daniel used of the Messiah, and it refers to the Lord, the Messiah, who we know is Jesus Christ. So here is Christ returning on this cloud, and by the way, when you saw the ascension, He left in a cloud. Now as He returns, He returns in a cloud, and it goes on to say this, He had a golden crown on His head and a sharp sickle in His hand, and another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. Now, the word that is translated ripe in this particular passage in the original language of the Greek is a word that means withered and dried and ready to bring down. Think of the difference between Christ's first coming and His second coming. First coming quietly, obscurely, in a manger. Second coming on a cloud, ready to reap and judge the earth. First coming, Jesus Christ took 
the judgment of God for our sins by going to the cross and dying on the cross. Second coming, Jesus Christ rescues His followers but visits judgment on those who have rejected Him and spurned Him. They are polar opposite images of Christ, coming as a baby, coming as the conquering king. That's the contrast that we see here in this passage of Scripture when Christ returns. That's why it's so important that we make the decision to be lovers of God, followers of God, and not rejecters of God. And it's a decision that they will have to make during the tribulation. But I say to you, it's a decision that we need to make ourselves. It is the same God. These are the same ultimate outcomes for those who reject God. So rather than playing around in our walk with God, we need to show commitment and dedication to who God is, because if He is God, He deserves that. That's the idea. Final part of the passage, and with this clo we close. The Lord Jesus Christ comes and He reaps the harvest. But then we come to verse 17 and we find an angel who comes to reap as well. And look at what it says in verse 17. Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, and the angel who was, has authority over the fire, and he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, and its grapes are ripe. Now, what this is saying to us in this text is very important for us to understand. Rather than wheat being harvested, these are grapes. And the word for ripe is used differently in this passage. Rather than being dried and withered, it is the optimal peak place for reaping these grapes. What the Word of God is telling us is this. All of human history has been building toward this point as God has stored up His wrath for the wickedness and the sinfulness of men. Finally, the time has come to unleash that wrath on the wickedness of man. Look at what it says, verse 19. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw into the great winepress of the wrath of God. Now, if any of you have seen a winepress in the ancient Near East, it was a bowl that was often hewn out of stone, and there was a channel that went from the bowl to the receptacle. And people would come in and tread on the grapes, step on the grapes, causing the grapes to burst and the red juice of the grapes to flow down the channel into the receptacle. In Bible prophecy, this action, because it looks like blood, is often a description of the judgment of God. As a matter of fact, we have a song that probably many don't even realize is based on this passage of Scripture. It's called the Battle Hymn of the Republic. And it wasn't talking about Abraham Lincoln. It was talking about the wrath of God and the judgment of God. 
So what the Word of God is warning us of is this. Those who stand as enemies of God will be crushed just as these grapes. And it closes this thought with verse 20. There is going to come a climactic battle between the forces of the Antichrist, the false prophet, and the dragon who will stand against the Lord Jesus Christ and His holy ones as they return. Many of you know the name of this battle, Armageddon. And what the Bible describes for us is the outcome of the battle of Armageddon, and we find it touched on in the 20th verse, but will be further developed in the closing chapters of the book of Revelation. But just look at what it says. And the winepress was trodden outside the city, so outside Jerusalem, and the blood flowed from the winepress, a horse's bridle high for 1,600 stadia. Now, just in case you don't know what a stadia is, that's approaching 200 miles. It would be a bloodbath as unrighteous, wicked people stand to oppose the living God. Now, why does the Bible include a passage like this? It includes it because it is sharing with us that God is holy and just, and while He's loving, He gives the eternal gospel to people to give them the opportunity to come into a relationship with Him. Because of sin, we stand separated from God. And being separated from God means that we stand an eternity away from Him in a place of eternal torment called hell. Not my words, but the Word of God. Now, if we're going to be true to God's Word, we have to preach passages like this. We have to share its truth. And we do so reverently, recognizing that God is God, and I am only sharing what He has shared in His Word. We could gloss over it. We could skip over it. I actually went to a sermon a couple of years ago where hell was right in the text, and the pastor just skipped over it completely, didn't want to deal with it. But if we're going to be true to God's Word, that's not what we do. We address it. We look into it, and we grow in our understanding. God is love. But a part of God's makeup is also a righteous indignation towards sin and rebellion. And God must address that just as He addresses His love. Heavenly Father, we thank You for this text. And we recognize that this is a difficult text for many to hear. But Lord, we also recognize it's the eternal Word of God. Thank You for being our God. Thank You for providing a way out of this terrible outcome for the enemies of God. Lord, may we be faithful. We recognize that apart from Jesus Christ, all of us deserve the same. 
as it's described in this text. So God, our prayer is that number one, we will be faithful to you. And number two, we will bring the gospel, the eternal gospel to those around us. They might hear the way of escape from this terrible outcome. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.